Hello, Fellowship family. It's great to have you with us as we continue our series called Decided, Key Decisions of a Follower of Jesus. And uh, this week we're going to be looking at another one of those decisions, and that's the decision to either have an attitude for the things you don't have or gratitude for the things you already have. And I want you to think with me, as you take a look at your notes, there's a question up there. How much of your life, how much of your life is spent trying to get things you don't yet have versus thankful for things you already have? I think that's a pretty good question when we think about gratitude, because if your gratitude, if you have gratitude in your life, if you're grateful, you're going to spend more time thankful for what you already have and content with what you already have versus discontent with what you don't have. I want you to think through that. How much of your time, how much of your mind, your processing, your energy, your time is striving for something or things that you don't yet have? Have you ever thought about quantifying it? I want you to look at that. So I put zero to 100%. How much time are you striving? Put a tick mark right where you think you might be on the percentages, and I'll tell you what I did with mine. So I'll give you some time to take a look at that. Just think through. How much time are you processing? How much money are you spending trying to get things that you don't yet have? How many or versus just being thankful for what you already have? Because here's the reality. The more you can move it to being thankful, the more gratitude is going to grow. The more you're content with what you have, gratitude is just going to grow in your life. Now, I'll just tell you what I did with mine. Mine's probably 70-30 this week. Because this week, I, you know, we're still trying to get fully into this building, and there was a whole bunch of things we needed to work on over the course of this week, and I was focused on getting things, something I didn't have yet. My, my son is going to get married this upcoming week, and so he hasn't been married yet, so we're preparing for all that. And if you're in the Hishma house, you'll probably have some anxiety about us being anxious about, uh, you know, what's not yet happened. And so people around us probably feel that, and you do too. When you are not content, when you might be a perfectionist, so something's not always right, there's people around you who, who face that reality about who you are. They bear that burden around you. You may think it only affects you, but it affects a lot of people around you. What did you put there? Now show it to someone next to you who you kind of know. See it? Now they'll probably look at it and go, no, and he's like, you are trying a whole lot more than you think you are. <laughs> Here's what I want to do. I want to try to take that slider, I would take that tick mark, and I want to move it to the left as much as we can. What could it look like for you to grow in gratitude? And I understand that as we talk about this topic, we live at a time when we've never had more. We've never had more opportunities. We've never had more gadgets, more, more uh, you know, material items. We are just filled with stuff. And uh, we have even uh, closer access to, to more information. Right now, if you don't have a question, what do you do? You Google it. You don't ask anyone. You Google it and you find out an answer. Uh, information is just there. It's right there. You would think with all this stuff, we would be content. We would have what we've always thought we've wanted. We'd have life on our own terms. And yet, like the great theologian Bono says, we still haven't found what we're looking for, Right? We still haven't found, we'll search, we can do all of these experiences, but we still haven't found what we're looking for. We still wind up being impatient, even in Topeka with traffic. I mean, I'm impatient 
With traffic in Topeka, I mean, if those of us who used to live in Dallas, I mean, you'd sit in one location sometimes for 30 minutes. Here, we sit 30 seconds anywhere. We're going, come on. I mean, we've called the Topeka Department of Transformation every name under the sun, you know? And it seems like many of them work with toothpicks going around these roundabouts because they take so long. We're impatient, right? No, you talk to anyone in road work? Road work is slow work, right? Yeah, it just takes time. We're impatient with that. Why is it that we're so easily angered? My wife, that's, that's uh, not her, me, I'm talking about. She always knows when I'm stressed. Hey, you're a little bit easily angered here. She can call that out on me. What about, um, what about impulsive or critical of others or always discontent? And yet, we all kind of hold up an online presence of, of kind of something that just kind of says, look, Look at my incredible, fantastic, successful, profound, intelligent, creative, and highly satisfied life. I mean, that's what we do. And when we see someone with that type of online presence, we go, wow, my life is lacking. Boy, look at what her boyfriend does for her. I mean, I wish you were more like a boyfriend. I mean, we tend to do that. We compare, and it makes us discontent. What if, though? What if we could shift the attention and our focus away from what we don't have and to what we already have? What if we believed what the Bible says about us and beginning with Christ and then working back into all the other areas of our lives, what if the gospel actually informed us? What if the gospel actually directed our lives towards Gratitude, because that's, if you forget everything else I say this morning, do, do not forget this. The gospel, by its very nature, powers gratitude. If you can live in the reality, what the Bible says about you, what you have already obtained through Christ, the Bible says relax. Relax in the power of the gospel. The gospel powers gratitude. And so what we want to do is we want to know, we want to understand, we want to respond to the gospel so that we can grow in gratitude. Now, as we do this, I want to direct you to a passage, and you might think it's a New Testament passage, but it's an Old Testament passage. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 58. You might go, oh, the gospel wasn't in the the Old Testament. The Old Testament was all just about laws and, and works, and the New Testament's about grace, and it's about the work of Christ, and absolutely, but no, not necessarily about the Old Testament. The Old Testament was always whispering the gospel. It's shouted in the New Testament, but it's whispered. And, and at this time in Isaiah's history, he's calling a Israel that's very discontent with God, that was finding delight in everything but God, that had turned away and was very distracted from a relationship with Christ, with, with God. And so Isaiah was there to call them back. Now, if you read Isaiah, his kind of shining chapter is Isaiah 6, where he has this, he goes and has this vision of heaven. He sees the holiness of God. Um, he says, woe is me. And God touches his lip with a coal and, and it in some way shows him grace. And then God says to him, Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And we end the topic there. We end the discussion. We end the sermon there. But you know what? If you keep keep reading in Isaiah 6, it says, Isaiah, you will go. I will send you to a people who have ears, but they don't listen. (laughs) And they have minds, but they'll never understand what you're talking about here. 
How many of us would sign up for ministry if that, okay, I want you to speak for me, but no one's going to listen, and even the ones who listen aren't going to understand what you're saying. Okay, really? Yes. The more you're in ministry, you'll realize that for anyone to really get it, God has to work in their hearts. They have to open up their hearts to understand who he is, and he has to move them to trust in him. That's what ministry is. Isaiah was that prophet who was called to be faithful amidst a very distracted, discontent nation of Israel. And so we're going to take a look at this as he's going to call him back, to, call them back to some values that I think are essential for us to grasp if we're going to grow in gratitude. Take a look with me in Isaiah 58, beginning with verse 1. It says this, Cry aloud... Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. (laughs) Let me just stop here. Really? I mean, Isaiah, give us us a happy message. We want positive, encouraging, K-love messages. We We don't want this. We don't want someone to point his finger at our sins. We want church to be fun. Don't don't mention something that I can dress up. Don't mention the real. We all run away from who we really are and what we really need. And yet Isaiah was called, call it. Call it right there. Call it right there. Watch what he's going to call. Verse 2. Yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you not see it, they ask. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it, they ask. Because in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. In other words, those fasts turn into brawls. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it not to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Wow, what is he saying there? He's giving us that first value, and it's the value of humility. It's humility. How to grow in, in gratitude? Humble yourself. Humbly accept and live the gospel. Now, he says this all, amongst, uh, all amidst a lot of religious activity. He said, you've declared a fast. You delight in getting together. And isn't it nice to be together in a brand new, sparkling new room here? I mean, we can do that. We can be excited about places, but we can, we can neglect the person, right? But when we humble ourselves, when we gather together... We kind of wipe the fog out of our eyes and clear our minds to focus on Jesus and the good news that we have through the gospel of Jesus. We take religious activity, which he says there was fasting, and they turned into more self-righteous people because they did fasting. And those who looked really bad when they were fasting, they were the more religious ones. And they actually got into fights about which one of them was better than the other. And, and God just said, whoa, man, this is not what it's all about. This is not humility. That's pride. And by the way, if whenever you seek to be humble, there's going to be that threat of pride, isn't there? That's the greatest threat. 
to humility is pride. They were involved in religious activity, and you know what? A constant striving to impress God and each other will only result in pride. It moved them to, be, to compare their lives with everyone else around them. And if you've ever struggled with self-righteousness, Hi, I'm Joe. I struggle with self-righteousness. You will hate others. You hate others. Especially the ones who you think are better than you. It gets in competitive. And, and what, what the gospel comes into our lives is says, Hey, stop all your working. Stop all your striving for something only Jesus can do for you. The gospel reveals what you cannot get and that only Jesus can give. Do you realize that? And so when you rest in the gospel, when you accept and live the gospel, what you're saying is, no, no, it's not by my my works of righteousness. It's not me being good enough to get in. It's not me keeping on doing this. It's not just doing one more thing for God. It's you trusting in his completed work for you. Pride will resist that. It, It has no need of the gospel. Pride will always compare your life with others. Pride may have the appearance may have the appearance of humility, but it will resist an internal openness, a vulnerability, a humility with God and others at every turn. Most of the time, I am blind to my pride, and so are you. That's why we need each other. That's why I need other people, because we sound right in our own eyes. But a man of wisdom, a woman of wisdom, listens to advice. We listen to good counsel in our lives. And we need each other to call pride out and give us the kind truth about ourselves so we never start believing the lies about us. Now, many of us can be very involved in religious activity. If you grew up in a church, you know what this is all about. And I grew up in a church, and I remember being very, very busy for Jesus and very active. I was in the youth group. I was in uh, a song group. I was in a, uh, you know, I, I served in, in children's church, all that kind of stuff. And it is easy, it is easy to get involved in ministry. And, and just because we run towards this doesn't mean we should, we should neglect that. No, it, it's this whole picture that I couldn't tell you how many of my friends would say, man, this just isn't working for me. This isn't working for me. Do you know usually that age when you, you usually ask that is 16? So this isn't working for me. I, I go to church every week. I'm, I'm still kind of the same person I am. It's just, it's just church isn't working for me. And you know what the answer to that is? Of course it shouldn't work for you. Jesus already worked for you. Church isn't going to get you closer to him. It's not going to be this mystical thing. You walk into the presence of Fellowship Bible Church and instantly you transform. Just for, you know, it's not going to rub off on you like that. It's in you humbling your heart to the completed work of Jesus. Anything you think you're missing about doing, stop. It's been done. Jesus did that for you. He lived a perfect life for you. You can't do that. He did. He died on the cross and totally satisfied the wrath of God and gave you the righteousness of God through what he did on the cross. Only Jesus could do that for you. And he rose again on the third day to defeat the power of sin and death from your life. I mean, only Jesus does that. You can't do that. Anything you think you aren't, Jesus has already accomplished for you. You're in his family. You're his child. We've got to. That's why we all have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day until we believe it. And we need to live it. 
Come to the end of performance. Stop playing church and start living in the completed work of Jesus. Humble yourself, your way, your righteousness, to the righteousness of God provided to us in Christ. Humility. Secondly, let's take a look in verse 6 at this next uh, value. And it goes to verse 12. So hang with me as I read this. Is not this the fast that I chose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, in the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorers of streets to dwell in. Look at the reward of a life lived with compassion. That's that second value is compassion. It's that, it's that angle where well, the more we live and give the gospel to others compassionately, the more we grow in gratitude. Because the gospel engages people who do not have with people who already have. This certainly includes the good news of the gospel, the proclaiming of the gospel, doesn't it? But it also includes the good works of the gospel, and that is the practical loving of people with no strings attached. And look at, look at what it calls you into. The righteousness shall go before you. God's righteousness will lead you when you do this. God's glory will guard you. His, his relationship. When you call me, I'll say, I'll, I hear you. When you cry out to me, I'll say, I'm here. I'm here. Your light will rise amongst the darkness and brokenness of this light. The life, this, the, the light of Jesus rises when you live compassionately. Even ancient ruins will be rebuilt. Your forefathers' faith will be re-exposed and revealed and a restored promise. Even the legacy of God's grace will be shown in your life when you live with compassion. Why do we do this? Because we've been given so much. You've been given the gospel. And God gave you the gospel because he saw your condition. You know that condition that's really you? The one you can't dress up? The one you can't hide from? That really you part of you that's beneath the veneer that you'd rather not let anyone see or anyone point a finger at. God sees that. And when he sees that, he says, I love you. He gives compassion. He takes compassion on us. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. But he chooses to give us righteousness when he could give us his wrath. God took compassion on you. Everything you have is because God so loved you that he gave his one and only son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the compassion of God, motivated by his love, and you have it. And since you have it, you now have it, we're called to be compassionate with it. Why? Because there's people who don't have it. Like where it says, the loose the bonds of, of wickedness. There's people without the righteousness of God. When you undo the straps of the yoke, there's people who live without freedom in Christ. When the pressed go free, because there's people without peace. There's people without the safety of eternal life in their lives. But it also moves to the practical. When we share our bread with the hungry, there's people without food. We give a picture of the gospel. When we go and offer our homes up to people to stay in who are homeless, what do we do? We have a home. You can have my home. You can use my home. When there's people who are naked and don't have clothing, we cover them because there's people without clothing. And the the power of the gospel is unleashed in the needs of people's lives. We all have a need to be loved, right? The gospel comes to us and says, God loves you. We all have a need to be accepted. The gospel says through Christ, you are now accepted. We all have a need for belonging, right? The gospel says you're in the family. You belong through Christ. You belong. And we all have a need for purpose, right? And the gospel comes and says, hey, be part of God's mission. Make, make this life about more than just you. You want to grow in gratitude? Live compassionately. Because here's the threat. Here's the threat. Ignorance. And excuse me if you're an English teacher. I spelled it that way intentionally. If you're going to ignore the needs of people around you, you will never live compassionately. If you're going to ignore the physical and spiritual and financial, even like this month is Mental Illness Awareness Month. When you ignore someone who's struggling with mental illness or physical illness, to strive for that next thing that you don't have but you want to really have, you will erode gratitude in your life. And that's why God has been teaching us as a church so much when we have moved outside of these walls and into our community and outside of even our country and into uh, the nations around the world. When we've gotten involved in places like Highcrest with people of great need, 94% poverty rate in that neighborhood alone, when we have moved in, into ShareFest, there's my promotion for ShareFest. When we've done stuff like that, no strings attached. When we've done Love Topeka, here's what I hear. Here's what I hear. I hear God is growing me in, in places. I, I am so thankful for what I have in Christ, what I have, what, how God has blessed me. Because I've helped people who don't have what I have. Young Life, even for Young Life to move and, and not just make it about Washburn Rural kids, but moving into like Topeka High and into Highland Park kids and going in and making a huge investment in those environments. Why? Because there's people who have great needs. And it's not just going to be for the people who look like us or act like us. For God so loved the world. His arms are wider than ours. We need to grow in that. When we get involved outside of our country, when we get involved like in, in uh, trash mountain projects and we go to places like Dominican Republic or the Philippines and we go to those places where people comb through trash for 14 hours a day and they end up with $2 at the end of the day. I mean, when, when, when that happens, I mean, what do you hear from people who go to those environments? You go and you hear, look at how much I have. Look, those people had nothing, but they have Jesus and they have everything. 
It grows us in contentment. Some of you, how many of you have served on a living water trip? Just raise your hand, some of you. Okay, some of you went on those trips and you dug a well and you didn't even know Jesus because we, a, a, we took a gamble on you because you could dig. <laughs> and you went there and you saw the Jesus of the gospel of what you were living there and you came to Christ and you come back and you go, wow, wow, look what God has taught me. There's no greater feeling than to pour myself out so that others can not be, uh, a need could be met, but also the gospel could be proclaimed. I just look at this, and, and when you do that, when you go, when you compassionately live and give the gospel outside of yourself, my goodness, you're going to grow in a greater sense of God's presence, right? Some of those words, his light will shine on you like noonday. I mean, you know the reward of that, don't you? There's a greater appreciation for God's power. There's a greater love for people. And there's a greater picture of God's glory just shining through your life all around you. I mean, it's like, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? You want to grow in gratitude? Live compassionately. You want to erode gratitude? Live for yourself. Ignore the needs of people around you. The last one, let's take a look at the last two verses of this chapter to get that final value. It says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Whenever you see that phrase, the mouth of the Lord spoken, you have God going, okay, let me sign this contract with you, okay? If the mouth of the Lord has spoken, 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 spoken. I mean, it's, that's a heavy phrase there. We kind of just glance right by it. But what God's saying is, hold me to this. You delight in me. That's the third value, delight. You delight in me and watch me. You watch me. You watch me pour my presence, pour my power through your life. Make me your greatest pleasure. Make me your greatest delight. And he uses this to talk about the Sabbath. Now, I certainly could start a message right now on how important it is for you to go to church, right? I won't do that. <laughs> it is important that we come to church, that we not neglect the gathering of together because there's so, many, so much activity. There's so much striving that happens on all the other days. And, and we just kind of let other things take over on a day that God says, rest in me, delight in me. Did you ever realize we gather together to do that? We gather together to, to say there's a hundred things I could do and there's a hundred things every one of you could do today. But for some reason you said, I want to go and I want to worship. Or even if you don't know Jesus yet, you came in and said, I just want to hear what this place is all about. And you're hearing right now what Jesus is all about. He's about giving rest for your soul. He's about you stepping away from performing. Everything our culture conditionally loves you for, the less than 1% to are successful. And it says, no, no, all of you, all of you can have what Jesus lived died and rose again for you to have and we sit back from our work and we rest in what he's done for us and so god when he created this earth he created that seventh day not because he went "Woo, the universe man it was so tough to build i'm so exhausted god doesn't do that he wasn't he could have gone and everything the way we have it could have been he could have done that 
but he slowed himself down. I believe he slowed himself down for six days so that he could give us a rhythm on how we're to live our lives, that we find our rest. You know, our culture is going to just make one day look like the other, sometimes the weekend busier than every other day. And we need to have that priority where we say, take a day and delight in the Lord. What could your life look like to grow in contentment and gratitude by taking one day to delight in the Lord? That's what we're called to do together. And, and I just look at your life and how many other things there are there for you to keep laboring, to keep striving for. And here the scriptures say it, Psalm 34, 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Look at how Paul refers to the delight that we're to take in the gospel. He says in Ephesians 3, 6, he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles, which means all of us, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, Israel, the Jews thought they were just God's select group, their little circle, and through the gospel, God took that circle and went around the world and said, Guys so love the world that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. And we have that delight in the reality of who you are in Christ. Delight in a relationship with your heavenly Father that you now have through Christ. Delight. You're in the family. You're partakers. You have an eternal inheritance. Delight. Give God the glory with your life. Everything in your life Everyone listen here. Everything in your life follows delight. So much of life is chasing after those things that bring you delight. I believe this is another longing that God has placed in us so that we would find our delight in him. Unfortunately, we seek other things to delight us. We make other things our pleasure, other things our delight besides the gospel. And the gospel takes delight in what you already have in Jesus. Delight in that. Lift up God for what he's done. Because here's the threat to delight. Self-gratification. When you go your own way and pursue your own things and delight in all the things except Jesus, things are going to break apart. You aren't going to have gratitude. I love what C.S. Lewis in his work, The Weight of Glory, says about us. And he says it about himself, so he includes himself. It's kind of strong, so listen with me. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And here's his commentary. We are far too easily pleased. Think with me. What do you delight? What's your greatest delight? If it's romance, you will be waiting for the next text. You will, especially if you're in junior high, right? Because that's how you communicate, right? I got it from her. Oh, she's so... You will always be waiting for the next thing. If it's alcohol, you're going to be craving that next drink. If it's sex or it's porn, you're going to secretly be plotting for your next glance, your next experience. If it's personal comfort, you're always going to be planning the next escape from your reality. If it's screens, then it's going to be the next upgrade to the game that you spend so much time in, or your smartphone upgrade, or the viral series on Netflix that you're addicted to. Whatever your delight is, 
your life is going to follow that. And it's not like Jesus says, don't delight anymore. Bah, humble, cancel Christmas. You know, he's not that person. He just says, whatever your delight is, if it's popularity, if it's significance, you will always be waiting for that next joke that you can crack to make people laugh. That next award you can receive. That next accomplishment. And God looks at all these things and says, far too easily pleased. You've settled on far less. Because it's only God who truly satisfies. Delight in him. Delight in him. Don't, don't take these counterfeits and make them central in your life. I had this really shown to me when I was traveling this February in India. Traveled there with Kyle Brown and with Mike Tyndall, and we went to a slum where the concentration of people in India, there's 50,000 people live in a square mile, and they live sometimes eight to a home that is no bigger than a 10 by 10 space. And uh, this, this uh, November, they had extreme flooding, so much so I saw pictures on on Google, uh, I, I found, saw pictures of, of jets floating off the tarmac because the airport was so flooded. And we went back there after they had been recovering from this flood. And we walked through this area, and the smell was so bad. It was a putrid smell that with my American and Arab nose, just really, I mean, I couldn't breathe out of my nose. I ended up talking like this because I was fighting the gag reflex. People were relieving themselves right out in the streets. Kyle snapped a picture and sent it to me. Take a look at this environment that they were living in. I went, we went to a Methodist church there, and I preached the gospel, and I served communion there. And um, we gave out supplies, food, and uh, a blanket, and a bucket that they could get water in because they don't even have running water in their homes. And then there was a social worker next to me, and I said, man, what, what more can we do? I was just overcome. Now, on the good side, they didn't have anything, but they had Jesus, so they had everything, okay? And they still had smiles on their faces. But I said, how do you move people off the slum? And the social worker said, Joe, you don't know the story about this, but let me tell you, after the floods, the government came in and offered every family in here an apartment, a clean apartment, with uh, a concrete floor. They live on a mud floor right now. It's always wet. There's always infectious diseases in it. They offered them running water and electricity if they would just leave the slum. But they never left. All these people had that invitation. They never jumped out of the slum. They never left. Why? Why? I mean, that was what I was just confounded in. Why would they live in filth? Why would they live with all these diseases around them? Why would they subject, I mean, sexual abuse in those environments are just through the roof. You don't even want to know the numbers of what's happening to these little girls in these environments. And it's just crazy. Why would they want to stay there when an offering of an apartment, I mean, it's not it's as good as the ones we have, but it's so much better than the slum. Why would they say no? And here's the reality. The something in their minds made them feel more safe and comfortable than whatever a cleaner, safer, far better apartment with lights and plumbing and running water could they could. So they risk their lives each day and ignore the offer. Before we point the finger, I want you to think about a spiritual slum that we're living in. I want you to think about that. Because every time we make something other than Jesus our greatest delight, 
we choose the slum. Why? Some of us are more comfortable away from Jesus than we are with him. Some of us just get more pleasure away from Jesus than we've ever sold out our lives to him. Here's the deal. Every time, every time, we walk away from the delight and pleasure that only Jesus can give us, and we start striving, and we don't start resting in what he's already done. We live in the slum. Hey, Jesus has already offered us a such better life away from this slum. Step off the slum and into the riches of God's grace. That's the picture we're called. Take a vacation. Rest from self-gratification and delight in the rest in God. Your decision. Either grow in gratitude or just letting that cycle of discontentment and constant striving just keep going. God offers us a decision. Grow in gratitude. Make that your decision right now. I want to grow in gratitude. Make this your prayer. God, grow me in humility. Grow me in compassion. Give me a heart. Give me eyes to see what you can see in this world. And, and Lord, I make you my greatest delight. Before I even have an appetite for you, I make you my greatest delight. Grow me in an appetite for you. And you will grow in gratitude. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you see us. You see what we delight in. You see what we're resting in or what we're striving for. And we come before you and we thank you for calling it in our lives through this passage. Uh, This does not burden us. The gospel never burdens us. It sets us free from ourselves. It sets us free from a never-ending cycle of performance and falling short and into the completed work of Jesus, the grace and the glory of the work of Jesus in our lives. May we grow in gratitude as our lives are powered by the gospel. For it's in the name of Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, that we pray. Amen.